Hello and welcome to this next episode of Mint Face Talks Acting. Um, you're here with me, Orla. And me, Ollie. And we are lucky enough today to be speaking to Ian Ricketts. Um, and Ian Ricketts is a teacher at GSA. He's a tutor in acting. And he taught us on our masters. We had him about once a week. He did. He um, taught us them. I think it was mo- movement for actors, wasn't it? It was movement. Uh, yeah. First of all, it was acting. It was on the acting module, and then That's it's right. movement for actors by the end of it. Um, and I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible experience being taught by him. And he has just. We just wanted to bring him on here because he has the best words of wisdom for any actor out there, any person in general. Um, and yeah, I can't, he, he's had just such a life and such a career as well. So he was an actor first and he's been teaching at the Guildford School of Acting for, I don't know, I think it's over 40 years. Um, and he's just so revered at the school and by anyone who's ever met him. This is a little bit different from the other podcasts we've done so far. So I'd say just sit back, relax and listen his words of wisdom yeah yeah about everything from stories to experiences in the industry there'll be some brilliant nuggets of advice in there really really good so enjoy welcome back to mint face talks acting we are very privileged today to be able to speak to ian ricketts who i think uh comes into the category of well i think uh, a legend um in uh, in most people's eyes um welcome ian firstly <laughs> all and i are going to have a a chat to you today about uh, about a few things but maybe just for those who are um aren't as fortunate as all and i to know you so well could you tell us a bit about uh, yourself and your uh your your story so far at gsa Let's back a very long way. Uh, and my reason for being at GSA, however indirectly, is probably my reason for being in the theatre. Uh, I had no intention of going into the theatre as a career because I've always had such difficulty with people. As a schoolboy, I was conspicuously out of joint (laughs) and uh, I thought I would farm because I seemed to connect rather more successfully with horses and sheep and cows than I did with human beings. They seemed remarkably clear of prejudice Mm. and uh, open-minded and one was not held to account for one's past or one's privilege or one's capacity for achievement all of which I either had reason to question for myself or had presented to me uncomfortably. But when I began life farming, I had to do a year's practical up in Cambridge. 
um, in the countryside, not the university. And I was on a farm that was feudal in its working. And the animal was treated as a commodity. And it dripped through my slow brain. Farming is a science and a business and as practiced usually entirely without consideration for the aesthetic or the poetic models that had endeared the the scheme to me. And the only other thing that had ever meant anything to me reliably was Shakespeare. He seemed to be wholly without prejudice. He withheld judgment. You could look for him everywhere in his plays and he was nowhere to be found. All he bestowed upon us was his perception of the human condition and the countryside. And so, to my parents' utter dismay, I moved from my intending the Royal Agricultural College, where I had a place, and went instead to Lambda, where I was also, of course, a round peg in a square hole, or square peg in a round one. And it took me a very long time working as a jobbing actor to give up my own preconceptions as to what comprised a fulfilling life. And I had thought of it in terms of what I ought to achieve rather than the sort of person I might be. And it was through encountering people whose being was so much more than their public achievement ever gave that enabled me to see that really to work in the theatre one does not have to be the ornament One can be privy to the processes and the ideas and the people in relation to those of different times, different places, different kinds, and not oneself be a central figure in that process. One could be a permanent agitating catalyst for others in their perception. And when quite by chance 
I was invited to direct at GSA. My wife, Celia, said, you must do this. It doesn't matter if it all falls apart. You've got a telly coming up. There's that comfort. And to my surprise, I found that GSA was the place where I was best able to live fully and truthfully without a day-to-day -day concern about what others would think. Uh, and it also came to me over the years how no human being, however talented, can be regarded as a commodity. They may be used as one, but if they allow themselves to believe that, they're to that extent diminished, however celebrated they may be in the public eye. So it became my aspiration, and still is, to participate in people's lives to the extent that I'm able to give them hospitality and freedom with the unexpected. Whether it be the circumstances of survival from day to day, or as artists, or simply as themselves, because so much is calculated when people talk about the theatre. What sort of an actor, what sort of a person are you going to present yourself as being? And that's anathema to me. But the, the irony is that to the extent that people are equipped to meet those crises is frequently the measure of their stature independently of the craft. And their independence of fortune gives them not only a capacity but an appeal that extends way beyond the formal economics of career and survival because any part they are called upon to play is in that moment their career. Some of the greatest achievements of those who have attended the school have had only the faintest connection in formal terms with their training. They may have become doctors, barristers, journalists, prison chaplains, clerics in the church, 
artists. They may run garden centers, or as in the case of one beautiful Oxonian postgraduate, marry a tea planter and found a school in Africa on her own initiative so that her husband's employees should have an education. Well, if the theatre is an all-embracing craft, we know it is, from which no discipline can be excluded. It's curious that the difficulties presented to people making a career as actors sometimes has as its consequence um, a supreme achievement <laughs> quite outside the theatre but not possible without it. That's rather a long sentence. Very interesting there. I think what you said about what you what you have to offer students at GSA and hospitality and freedom is definitely, mm. definitely what we received. Yeah, um, it's something that rang yeah. true very much with us. I think during our training you were very much a, uh, a figure of uh, positivity and uh, having the ability to kind of not only reassure us but keep us very uh, grounded and I think good-natured as well just all the time and kind of open your eyes about everything that was important and and uh, realistic I think yeah definitely I think it's it's funny because we've been doing these podcasts about um, we went to a big conference and we listened to casting directors mm. and people in the industry talk about you know what we should do what, mm. what actors should be doing at the moment to um, boost your image and your spotlight profile and you know all these things um, and and very much all about yourself as a commodity mm-hmm. um, and I think it's important to remember that you're not you know like you said you're when we see somebody what we remember of them may or may not attach to something that they've said but it's entirely independent of it. And when we read a text, that gives us the outline of a circumstance, a character, a body of possibilities. But its life is at another level of being entirely. And it arises from the way in which that person has exercised their own sensibility independently of formal doctrines, arguments, anything that may have been asked of them. And our relationship with people, the the relationship of good nature, doesn't hinge upon words. We pass upon the stair and the morning can be resuscitated and brought to life, or one can be disappointed. Simply in the passage of 
two beings on a stair. Well, if we trust the being we happen to have arrived at as he or she is and be, as I said, hospitable to all we encounter, then we extend the realm in which anything may be considered. It in no way discourages us from a specific conversation. Let's talk about Keats' letters. Or, have you read Boswell? You can have that, but you don't need it. You might find yourself talking about different kinds of shoe polish or what sorts of French beans best climb up poles or the most extraordinary tangents of conversation. But the essence of one's connection is the extent to which he or she is happy in one's presence to be themselves. I was going to say undressed, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, not to be defending a rampart, mm. not mm. to be living with apprehension. Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely true, and I think it's what it's it's something you can apply specifically, I think, to an audition room. Yes. Because you can go in there, and there's a kind of I suppose there's a, a metaphorical line, isn't there, between yes. the people who are potentially going to employ you and you mm -hmm. and you're there to perform, you're there to show. But I suppose, you know, you just have to think of the other person as a person or the people. And yes. Yeah, and, and be hospitable. And then, like you said, the, the possibilities are endless of where, of what might happen in that room then. Yes. Yeah. They give one the opportunity to play yes. in its exactly. proper sense. Yeah. Children are invited to go out and play. Well, a child's play is often deeply investigative, be it of creatures or activities. It can be a fully serious activity, play. And play is a fully serious activity activity for us. It crosses boundaries and lightens what otherwise might be deadly. I actually remember the class we had when you asked us to go outside oh, it's children. with our yes. three-year-old yes. selves. I remember it well, actually. Mm -hmm. And I remember initially thinking, I don't know about you all, I remember initially thinking, because it was one of the first few classes we had with you, I think. I think it was. And I remember thinking, I didn't I didn't knock the idea, but I, th I think I originally thought that it wouldn't have much effect or it wouldn't come to much or it wouldn't allow me to realise anything. But like you said, when you go back to a time in which you're playing with no reservations and no, um, just freely mm -hmm. um, as a child, then 
you get rid of any any worries and and qualms that you might have about anything i think i went to i don't know what you did i think i went to find some worms in the mud or something but you really start to invest in that one bit of play that you're doing regardless of anything else that's that's happening it was really nice actually just to be on your own for a bit because mm-hmm. obviously we just started and we were meeting loads of people all at once yes. in a new town um new place new school yeah, yeah. and um i don't know it's 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 quite stressful to be that kind oh, of hugely you, you know to be your best self, self to meet yeah. everyone and make a good impression on you and on your teachers and on all these people that are going to be your friends and mm. your colleagues so it was quite nice just to go out and just relax and just be alone with yourself for 45 minutes or and you know you said leave phones behind don't look at the time mm. come back when you're ready mm. <laughs> i came back so late <laughs> <laughs> wonderful yeah, i was like oh, i'm so sorry <laughs> just out in the mud <laughs> something that troubled me at school Mm, yeah, likewise. I was always in a panic about exams and a phobia about forgetting. And it was 30 or 40 years later, after school and degree and so on had been passed through, that I realised I was remembering bodies of experience that I had never committed to memory at the time. I had never made a formal note of this encounter with a particular person. Or sometimes a passage in a book or a play. And then some catalyst, good company, would bring back that memory and one could recover it in all its minute detail almost as though one had made a recording and then it came to me that of course one has made a recording one has somewhere recorded every instant, every micro moment of one's life, the vanities, the shame, the fear, the hunger, panics, the glories, all of them have been held in memory. And if one is at home with oneself, being an observer of all, then what is relevant will come to one in the instant of exchange. One's not parading a particular kind of being, but simply being the universal Allah, the universal Olive. Then nothing is prevented. And that freedom to decide how we feel, how we regard something remembered, is the last of human freedoms. It's the last that we 
keep before we die, how we regard it. And really our nature is how we regard life. And if we embrace it with relish, whatever it may be, its finest possibilities become evident. And if the situation is dire, then one's recording is absolute. One observes it in all its detail. And possibly one has a part to play in clearing it up or rescuing or celebrating whatever the case may be. But one's essential being is a still point, listening and observing. And to the extent that one is without prejudice in that, one is free to act, wherever it may be. The most unlikely roles and so often our relationship with people is so unlikely. Mm. And I remember my utterly friendless days at school because of a, an obstinacy that would not be part of a nexus of a group or a gang or a field of special interest and I think now of all the people wholly unlike me whom I care about without ever having to say a word I recognize that precept. It's independent of doing things or saying things. But it affects the atmosphere in which things can be done and how things can be said. And when we come together here at GSA, we're playing with those potentialities drawing upon the vast experience from our genealogical past, whatever race we belong to, whatever sort of education we've enjoyed. And we have that sense of sharing cultivation, sharing the springtime, and in a sense the result hardly matters because the result has been within the process and the process is remembered. I've always enjoyed the notion of bodily fitness and perversely have never been to a gym <laughs> because my feelings about bodily fitness are related to 
the tasks of every day. The texture of bread or the weight of a log or the smell of a garment or whatever it might be. And when one's body is exercised by choice in receiving the nature of what it handles, there is a kind of limbering, a kind of fitness in the fact of being aware one is not going to want that body to give out. So one stands tall. One's not going to want to trip about on stairs. So one notices one's toes and the feeling of the ground beneath the feet. And there's really very little in life that's precluded from that relish. Even pain is an interesting phenomenon, even as one looks forward to the end of it. It's a part of the experience of living as a being, and sometimes remembering that one is the observer is one's only salvation in moments of profound grief. When that entails loss, then the person supposedly lost is acutely present in one's being and continues to be there. And one upholds their glories, their values in the memory of what they meant and together you shared. It's not fixed to the physical realm. Fascinating in relation to the theatre because we've seen productions that are described as definitive or in some way spectacular, memorable. What stays with one is the feeling that came about as a consequence of being present and how one's own estate was extended by that experience. How one saw freshly or more than was possible before one bore witness to that performance. I've always been much taken with the notion that the truth of an idea is of more consequence than the fiction of the tale. Story can hold truths that transcend the material itself. They may be wonderful within that material, but they are independent of it. Mm. You find yourself 
salad days when I was queen of judgment. Without ever having been a Cleopatra, but having known her world through seeing that play, a world that with your upbringing might have been discouraged even as an exercise in literary understanding. But when you saw or heard or read that play, then you acknowledged a dimension of yourself upon which you were free to draw, likewise with your Coriolanus, parts that have seized us. have often seized us because they were unacknowledged dimensions of one's own nature, mm. that it was culturally inappropriate that one should exercise. I remember feeling that about the patrician scorn of Coriolanus for the Roman mob and knowing that that was not something I could talk about <laughs> I never have well I have now <laughs> but it was another part of one's freedom as an artist if one isn't attached to conveying a particular persona then all colours are admitted to the palette of one's response mm. and it's a matter of appropriate choice so the more one sees the better definitely be it literally or metaphorically yeah. 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 I own that I fall short in my knowledge of modern as I did fall short in my knowledge of culture's past. I remember being taught carpentry by a remarkable man. He was a cabinet maker. He's described as the village carpenter. But his craftsmanship was the equal of any 18th century cabinet maker. I have a chest of drawers he made from walnut lap dovetails and the drawers move so sweetly you can scarcely hear them. It's like the throttly piece that will stand steady on the engine of a Rolls Royce. And that man had spent all his life with a modest body of tools, chisel, saw, largely chisel and saw, and plain. He had hardly ever touched glass paper, however fine, because 
his planing was so extraordinarily skillful that he could bring a burnish to the grain simply with the weight of the plane, the sharpness of the blade and the fineness of the cut. And wood was everywhere in one's childhood and one tried to carve things with a penknife or make bows and arrows. Daddy Cage, with his workshop in the village, made pieces of art that could have been celebrated in any palace of the land. And I didn't think I would ever want to be a cabinet maker but I did see in that moment and in the stonemason who did some work for my father the fineness of a life that handles a material from which he receives understanding and prompting and he, to which he himself gives shape and how that was a metaphor for every complication that the human mind could introduce through science or fashion or politics. And one was justified in bringing one's attention to the very simplest craft. In the case of dear little Elsie Bryce, who only came up to your shoulder Robert, and had spent her entire life washing dishes and cleaning loos in a boy's school. And she shone with integrity. She was purer than harpic. And yet her task was the one that might have been regarded as most menial, most wanting for interest or skill. Those are the characters who stay with me when I look back over 80 years. And retrospectively feel immense gratitude that they were one's friends. Then in 1940s England, an eight-year-old boy would not necessarily expect to make friends with a little woman who did the washing up and cleaned the loos. Saw her at the very end of her life because my brother and I 
used to distribute apples and holly at Christmas amongst the elderly in the village. Well, those elderly we knew. And Elsie Price lived in a little Tudor cottage. It was damp. It had a leaking thatch. It was two up, two down. I'm not sure how much up there was. The loo was at the end of the garden. The floors were heavy slabs of stone. And there was no central heating of any kind. And she used to keep warm wearing sacks held together with rope over her clothes. In the winter, my brother and I were deeply affected by that because she was so grateful. But it wasn't the gratitude of pleading was just the radiance of responding. Somebody who had no expectations for herself and had lived an entire life in that kind of service and would not have believed for one moment that she would be remembered or celebrated. And good parts are like that. Get them right. Or answer truthfully. And they cannot fail. And they will be remembered as long as any biblical text. Do you have a favourite part? Or I character from a play? never allowed myself that. There are so many parts I would love to play if I were invited, but for which I don't feel right as an actor. Mm. When some years ago, 20 years ago now, I played Gloucester in King Lear, I was invited. It was the first time it had ever happened to me. I was invited by the director to fly up to Glasgow one Sunday and meet the man playing Lear to see whether he would approve for the director's sake. And for some reason he did. And I found myself playing a Shakespeare heavy, for which I would not, in a month of Sundays, presented myself. I might have read for the fool. Yes, there's a part I would mm. find it very difficult to decline. Gloucester gets his eyes put out. out. Yes, he does. Where was that production? It was firstly in the old fruit market. No, it was firstly in Dundee. 
Then in the old fruit market in Glasgow, oh, went to Guernsey, Dundee, Guernsey, Glasgow, and then the Royal Lyceum in wow. Edinburgh. In that order? In that order. Uptown. We yeah. ended at the Royal Lyceum. Wow. And I'm glad that came at the end because that was the most magnificent mm. theatre I can ever remember playing in. It had been beautifully restored. Had a fine acoustic. And I'd begun to think it possible that I could inhabit Gloucester. And I'd had a rather kind review somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> appalling vanity. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and it had given me confidence because I not wanted uh, to play a stereotype of any kind. But your question, I think I would like to play the fool. I would quite like to play fierce in the cherry orchard. Um, I did once when I was at Lambda, and it's the 86 road. It's a part I can look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> and I rem remember Donald Sutherland playing Gaev. <laughs> quite a starry cast. <laughs> <laughs> They're full of so many fascinating stories, Ian. Every yeah, time I listen yeah. to you, always, I always just, I'm in a uh, bit bewilderment. <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> I have met people I would never have designed to mm. meet at all. Did I ever tell you how I met Eisenhower? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I have not heard this one. Oh, uh, no. well, stop me when it becomes tedious. <laughs> I went to a conference in Geneva. I'd done my A-levels, and it was the end of my school days. And my mother, <coughs> my mother, thought very sensibly that it would be a good thing for me to do something wholly unrelated to school and the past and to see something of Europe, the continent. So I went to a conference of the Economic and Social Council in Geneva, which happened to coincide just over that weekend with the Five Power Conference that was to happen when Eisenhower, Anthony Eden, Monsieur Faure, Brezhnev, was it? Was it still? No, it would have been Khrushchev. And I think at that time, Shanghai Czech and China. Uh, 
but they were meeting in deepest secrecy in Geneva. And everyone knew that they were going to be meeting, so as far as people were worried about security in those days, Switzerland was on alert. And everyone knew the airport at which they would arrive and they would be driven to their respective in embassies. And the students, fellow students with whom I was there, all wanted to see Eisenhower because he'd just been elected president. Uh, and uh, I wasn't particularly curious to stand in a road and wait for a couple of hours mm. for a motorcade to pass. And there was to be a, a dance later that evening given by one of the diplomats in the UN, Scottish dancing. And that was of more interest to me. I was wearing my kilt and I decided to go for a walk in the UN Gardens, Palais des Nations, that's it. And there was a long avenue beside the Palais des Nations. It was a very narrow one, went over a humpback bridge at one point. And at either end of this avenue were two main roads on either or both of which the arrivals might happen. So I sat on the humpback bridge and listened to the noise a quarter of a mile in either direction. And from the northern end, the noise suddenly came into a roar and then motorcyclists, four abreast, came down this avenue. And they had to come two abreast to get over the humpback bridge. And I was sitting on the parapet. And I might not have been there. They looked neither to right nor to left. And they were followed by <coughs> a dark black car, probably a Daimler or a Row, Rose, and it had within it Anton Eden, Harold Macmillan, who was then Foreign Secretary, um, sitting in the back in conversation, and uh, I certainly didn't exist for them either. Um, nor saw any occasion that I should. And they passed, and more motorcyclists. And then there was an even greater roar from the end line from which the British delegation had arrived. 
and larger motorcyclists on larger motorbikes. Again, four abreast came hurtling down and narrowed to two, and they could only just make it over the humpback bridge. And they were American. And behind them was a vast Cadillac, I suppose it was a Cadillac. And it was open. And there were two men sitting in the back, driver and security man in front. And the two men sitting in the back uh, were both in shirt sleeves. It was in midsummer. Um, and uh, they were in summer suits, that's it. They were. Foster Dulles was wearing his coat. But Eisenhower, I think, had shed his. And as he approached the bridge, they approached, Eisenhower saw me. And he stood up in the back of his Cadillac and opened his arms in the characteristic Eisenhower acclaim of thousands way <laughs> and gave me the victory sign because of course he'd been Allied commander Europe during the war and any young man in a kilt was necessarily Scots and mm. Eisenhower was quite well disposed I think towards the Scots and then some years later, I encountered Kennedy by accident, <laughs> crossing the old Brompton Road. And the Daimler he was travelling in, with Macmillan, by then Prime Minister, uh, had to stop because there'd been a traffic hold-up somewhere at Gloucester Road. And so the whole motorcade had, had to come to a halt. And I was just trying to cross the old Brompton Road. And I was on an island in the middle. And Kennedy was in the car where you are. I was as close to Kennedy as I am to all of the oh, wow. And Kennedy smiled through the window. I by design those encounters, they would never have happened. No, no. You have to just... You just have to be amused, yeah. <laughs> curious. Amazing experiences. I wonder if but I might we just... we all do. We all do, yeah. Yes. Do. I wonder if I might ask, actually, going back to um, your teaching and still teaching at, at mm. GSA, we were so fortunate to have you weekly. I wonder what it is for you, though, that you um, deem important to teach or pass on or share with students at drama school. You've, you've taught there for, um, for a few years now. W what it is that you think is the most important that 
students need to learn and whether it's changed actually over the years whilst they're training? It has changed. When I began, it was a body of skills. Mm. Ask me what is the most important thing now. It's example. Okay. The example of not knowing, the example of helplessness, the example of being prepared to encounter the unknown. There are books, there are scholars, there are brilliant practitioners. What students need is somebody who is sharing the same ground and know that it is equal encounter. So the idea is central, not a person. Okay. Yeah. And if they become accustomed to the notion of sharing mm -hmm. apprehensions, excitements, any form of human experience, then that is my opportunity. Because one's wish is that one should become insensibly redundant that the student should become autonomous, mm -hmm. should be his or her own tutor. Mm -hmm. And if one is a fellow in that enterprise, it's more likely to happen than if one says, now look, experience mm. has shown me, yes, experience may have shown you, but that was just 60 years before we appeared on the globe. Experience is going to show something quite different for those who are training now. And for each person individually. For everyone. Well. Yeah. Everyone is so distinctly a being, unrepeatably him or herself. Mm. And one wants them to realize the fullness of that being uh, and its rightness. Because we're born with a body of capacities and aspirations uh, that is wholly distinct. And we meet those who are sympathetic or have similar tastes and we're enlarged by them but we're still answerable to ourselves and if people can be enabled to be truthful with themselves then that process is underway and one gives support to it through undertaking it freshly oneself, which is why Grania will have referred to the apprehension one has whenever one is teaching, mm. because that is the case. Mm.
that's that's incredible I think and not it's because you're always trying to impress someone and you're you know you in a class it's it's so difficult to kind of I don't know not not try and impress the teacher but just try and do the work mm. I came nearer to all that understanding all that when she was playing Bala but it allowed me to see a region of life nature and sensibility that was the first Shakespeare assessment book wasn't it mm. Mm. CSA, yeah. mm. people are inevitably Pretension and can't be doing with it. But there's also a need for people, you, you mentioned it earlier, for people to to want not feedback but to want appreciation, I guess is the word. Yes. Uh, and we, despite I think having moments of disregarding people's opinions, I think a lot of it is thriving off, like you said earlier about your story when you played <coughs> Glossy, thrive off. Um, people's appreciation. People's appreciation, don't you? Yes. And I think everyone does as human beings. Yes, it can be, in, can be intoxicating. Completely. I think that's the word. <laughs> Completely mm. intoxicating. Mm. Mm. Do you think the um, Do you think the industry as it is now, uh, as a whole, people um, people's opinion and view on it has has changed very drastically? Maybe with the uh, influence of so many other inputs now through the internet and such, and, and so many people, I guess, more wanting to just reappear in it. But it's kind of vastly. Mm. When I joined Equity, you could know of almost everyone. Almost the 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 actors, everyone involved in you when it's putting it a little steeply. I think that I shouldn't make generalizations. I know, but I think people are more considerate of one another than they used to be. I'm still in touch with one person with whom I was at Lambda and indirectly with half a dozen more. Mm. But there's only one person with whom I was a student there who has been a lifelong friend and still is happily. Um, without any agenda attached. Mm. I'm not sure one can measure it like that. I'm sorry I had nothing intelligent to say on this. I prefer not to divide people into generations. After all, we relate to beings who are only a fraction of our age 
or sometimes are much more. But that's not the determining factor in our connection with them. And people have a body of knowledge and understanding very often of which they're only partially aware. You may sometimes know more of someone than they do of themselves, whether as a friend or as an actor or as a teacher. And by the same token, that could be said of you in relation to others. Mm -hmm. I think the training today is more realistic. I think people, because of the technologies supporting them, have an illusion of connectedness that we could not have had. We still connected by letter. One wrote hundreds of letters. And it's surprising how often one had replies. Not always giving one work, but replies. And actors always lived a lonely life professionally, unless they've sought to be of a particular swim. And that's not always healthy. Sometimes it just happens and providence seems to smile upon them. I've not met anyone who trained at GSA who has regretted having been here. M many, many people who've subsequently turned to other things, but almost all of them insist that GSA was critical to that decision in a positive way. And I think coming back to the wide embrace of theatre, it's because there's no branch of human knowledge or understanding that can be discounted so you need to be interested in architecture and uh, charity shops and alleyways where people sell drugs. Not to necessarily to pursue these actively unless it happens to be part of a particular project, but to be open to it as a part of the scheme. Mm. And in that regard, I'm wholly unsuitable to be teaching because I have very little experience of the pop world or the world of fashion. But I think, like you mentioned, the great thing about GSA is the variety of people that you are exposed to. Yes, I, I think, think during our training, we you take bits from each each person, more so probably others than less from, yes. from some people. And then chance suddenly presents people from one of these worlds, like Eisenhower, <laughs> or the, the day when the Beatles used my dressing room. Did you meet them all? <clears throat> yes, I did meet them. But they were just poised. They were in a show, 
think it was called the Helen Shapiro Show. She was a young singer, still a schoolgirl, 16, and she became a figure, and she had a show. Kenny Everett was in the show, and it came to Sunderland where I was rehearsing for a Shakespeare festival. And the theatre manager said, would you mind, Ricketts, if at the weekend when this show is just coming in for the Saturday night, we used your dressing room? And I was pleased to say, yes, I'd be delighted. Um, and he said, you are coming, aren't you? And I he said, no, I'd not ever attended a show of that kind. But he said, the more reason. Um, you can sit in the lighting box. It will extend your education. And I did, and it did. It was extraordinary. These four young men came on towards the end and they were quite brilliant the rest was noisy and ingratiating and <laughs> <laughs> in no way engaged but those four young men they had such bravura such a sense of fun, such musicality, and they had a kind of poetry there, and uh, I came away at the end of the evening thinking they were really rather good, and as I went round to clear up in my dressing room. I thought they were lovely. If I didn't know who had been there, but it had been the four young men. Um, they were coming down the stairs. And they were really gracious. So I've always had a soft spot for the Beatles. <laughs> The only other person in that world I ever encountered was a girl called Marianne Faithful, who was quite a, a figure at that time, really was extraordinary. I think she wanted to engage my interest, <laughs> and I was deeply wary <laughs> of this formidable luscious creature, but it's not a world I know anything about. I'm glad to have just glimpsed it. Mm. Imagine if you said, no, no, they can't use my dressing room. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't come to the show. No, no. I won't sit in the lighting box. Yes. Imagine if I said yes to Marianne Faithful. Oh, well, that's what I thought you were going to say. 
I was just surprised and not able to take her entirely seriously. There is a woman whose sport is to collect um, susceptible males, which may be doing her a great injustice. She may just have been charming, but I have such a Puritan. I think it's a great pity that today's world does so little to encourage people in private reflection. History, men and women of letters, where you can meet those who preceded us without anyone between you. You can hear exactly what they said or wanted you to remember of what they thought. And you don't have to react. One of the great difficulties of theatre is that wherever one turns, one's called upon to react, to respond. And it's wonderful, but one needs a realm of private inquiry, especially if one is hoping for work as an actor. One needs a creative growth point in one's own life. Something one is cultivating. I don't think it matters particularly what it is, except that it should be truthfully interesting to oneself, like be Chinese porcelain or tapestry or medieval carving, a skill that one is, through which one is making inquiry of the condition of being human. May simply be visiting particular places and absorbing them, or spending a short time in a different way of life. I worked with a radio actor, immensely versatile man, and he was coming to the end of his contract with the drama rep, the BBC drama rep, and he decided he was taking his family to Spain so that he could perfect his skill in gypsy dancing. And he took his wife and family to live with gypsies in Spain. It was a conscious decision, just for six months. And when he came back, they were casting for, was it Pirates of the Caribbean or some such film that needed an actor with skills as a flamenco dancer. 
a commander Spanish, but to be a Brit. Well, I think life works providentially like that. One pursues what is right as it seems now, keeping one's vision wide, trusting to the worth of the activity itself for its own sake. And it has a curious way of fitting one for something that nobody has yet imagined or seen, but one's going to pursue it anyway. And it might be reaching for something that's seemingly impossible. When I was a boy, somebody said, how would you like to be remembered? And uh, the company had all suggested ways in which they would like to be remembered. Achievement, of course. This was a company of 15, 16-year-old boys. And uh, when it came to my turn, I thought, yes, I, I know how I would like to be remembered. I wonder if I've got the nerve to say it. I'd like to write one really good sonnet. Not not first eleven, but second eleven. I don't want to be famous for it, but I would like to write one sonnet that worked. And I feel that I'd reinvested something. I think an activity of that kind gives one a rigour when the rest of life can seem so formless, when the jobs we do as actors, washing up or caring for old people or whatever it might be, when we could think, oh, it's mindless. And we need to have something that exercises our critical acuity, our sensibility, our relish. So it may be Chinese porcelain, it may be tapestry. Doesn't matter what it is. baking, to bake a really fine wholemeal bun, remembering little Amy Price, and it was Amy, not else, Amy Price. I wonder what she ate on a minuscule pension in a leaking Tudor cottage with no central heating. 
until you were at the end of the garden. And no relatives. We're really amongst the fortunate, aren't we? Mm. I think I've spoken far too we, much. We've taken up far too much of your time, I was just going to no. say. Uh, I think we've come to the end of... Uh, of our interview. Thank you so mm. much, Ian, for joining us and sharing your <laughs> quite amazing stories. I had a load of questions written down in my book, mm. but I don't think any of them mm. could have could have shaped the conversation mm. as beautifully as that mm. as no. you did. So thank you very no. much again. Mm. And um, touched but horrified. <laughs> 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 thank you very much uh, for listening to this episode with Ian Ricketts and uh, please tune in in a couple of weeks for the next episode of Mint First Talks Acting.